0: So the title of today's message is, Can You Believe the Contradictions in the Bible? Let's open in prayer. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for for the opportunity we have to gather as a church. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that you give. I pray, Lord, that this message will not be anything that I have, anything that... I came up with, but that this message can be just a glory to you, and it can be your words speaking through me. I pray, Lord, that the message can be received in hearts and minds and actions today as you, as you will it and as you work and move in, in the congregation today. Lord, I just ask this all in your son, Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible is full of contradictions, and I'm very passionate about this topic. So get ready, we are going to read a lot of verses. So I go through and I tag all of the verses in the Bible so I can turn there quickly. So we've got like 20-something verses we're going to be looking at today. It's going to be fantastic, so get ready. I will talk slow. I'm a fast talker, that is true. All right, so let's take a look at several contradictions. The first one is going to be in Proverbs 18.22. Now just to make it a little bit easier on you, I did show up early this morning and put a bunch of them up on the board. Just like that. Okay. All right. Proverbs 18:22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Okay. That seems pretty self-explanatory, right? So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7.8. 1 Corinthians 7.8. But I say to unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am. Wait, what? First verse talks about being married. It's good to be married. Second verse says, no, 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 no. I'm just kidding. Don't get married. So let's read a couple more cuz maybe that's the one time thing, right? The Bible can't keep contradicting itself. So let's go to John 15:8. All right, so John 15:8 says by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. All right, Mark 11:14. see what that has to say. So Mark 11:14 says, "Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Wait, so do I sell fruit or not? What's going on? Surely there can't be any more, right? Wrong. All right, let's go to Proverbs 41. One. So, Proverbs forty one. One. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. All right. Exodus twenty three. Three. Exodus twenty three. Three. You shall not show partiality to a poor man. Okay, so the poor people are out then, right? We don't need to worry about them? That's what the Bible's saying? Last one. Turn with me to Proverbs 26, 4. I'm giving you plenty of time to turn there as I try and find where my tabs are. Yes. Good call. Before Revelation. Fabulous. So if you ever need to know where it is anything is always after genesis before revelation all right so these two these contradicting verses are right next to each other proverbs 26 verse 4 do not answer a fool according to his folly lest you also be like him and then 26 5 answer a fool according to his folly what is this i feel like a fool just saying this no comments from the peanut gallery So, clearly some of these verses were a bit of a stretch to be contradictions. You need to look at what comes before it and what comes after it and what they're trying to say in order to get the full message. But unfortunately, that's what the adversary does. He takes little bits and pieces and uses that to try and disprove the Bible. There are so many critics of God's holy word. We've got Da Vinci, the Jesus Seminar, you name it, they're probably a critic of the Bible unless they're a believing Christian organization. So let's set some groundwork to this study. So I've got a few questions for you. First off, do you believe these statements? Number one, God cannot err. Yes? Pretty easy one? Okay. Number two, the Bible is the Word of God. Yes? Another easy one? Okay, perfect. So let's look what the Bible has to say about those two statements. So the first one we're gonna to go to is John seventeen seven. So this is Jesus speaking. My Bible has it in red. And it says, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. So here's Jesus praying. So he's speaking to God. He calls it your word, meaning God's word. Jesus himself acknowledged the Bible as the holy inspired word of God. Okay. Okay. So maybe you're kind of a skeptic like me and thought, well, that's the New Testament. That's after Christ came. So, of course, a writer's going to put that. Of course, he's going to acknowledge that Jesus is, um, that the Word is is from God. So, all right, let's let's look at a New Testament then. Let's flip over to the New Testament. We're going to be in Psalm 119, verse 160. We're going to flip to the Old. Thank you. So, Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So there we go. Many years before Jesus became a man and walked on this earth, the Bible's words were being enforced as God and accurate. We'll look at a couple more, and we're going to be bouncing between the old and the new here. Uh, So we're going to be Romans 3, 4. So Romans 3, 4 says, Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Titus 1, 2. Titus is a hard one to find because it's an itty-bitty. So I'm going to give you a second to find Titus 1, 2. It's right after Timothy. We have some awesome Bible stewards. So Titus 1, 2 says, in hope of eternal life with God which cannot lie promised before time began so god cannot err but humans can the bible repeats it over and over that god is infallible but humans are not let's read a couple more verses just to really drive this point home into your heart we're going to be in john 10:34 and 35 Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. So, right there, it kind of talks about how infallible the scripture is. The scripture cannot be broken because it is God's word, and Jesus is the one who's saying that. So, Romans 9 6. Romans nine verse six, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel. Or excuse me, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So how can a flawed being write a perfect document? How can a human write something that's infallible? Well, we're going to go into that in a little bit. Stay tuned, that's coming. The Bible also calls itself Scripture. So turn with me to Galatians 3.8. So Galatians 3, verse 8 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, Saying, In you all the nations should be blessed. So, this is written in the past perfect tense. So, what does that mean? Well, it means it was and it still is. This word stands and is indestructible. No other book in the history of time has withstood the test of time like the Bible, and many books have tried. This stands above customs and traditions and rules and everything. So Jesus picked the most controversial story in Jonah and he confirmed it. So Matthew 12:40 says that. So Matthew verse 12 or chapter 12 verse 40. For as Jonah was 3 days And three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I love this because when I was studying it, I got the opportunity to read a bunch of different translations. I had like 15 of them up side by side. Every single translation that I read, nowhere in it did anyone say anything about this being a parable or a story or an illustration every single one of them said as jonah was in the belly of the the great fish so jesus said he was in the belly jesus said it like it was a historical account so a scientist went up to a little girl this little girl knew jesus believed with all her heart the biblical accuracies the scientist told her there was no conceivable way that a large fish could swallow a man and he live in the belly for three days He would run out of oxygen and die. The little girl responds, Okay. I choose to believe it happened, and when I go to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah myself. The scientist retorts, Well, what if he's not there? Then you ask him, said the little girl. I like that. That That's one of my favorites. So these stories are not stories. They're historical accounts. Genesis happened when god says that the world was created in six days he means six literal 24-hour periods i used to think okay i believe that genesis is accurate so six days but i wasn't there how do i know that you know how long a day was back then i mean a day is like a thousand years to him right look at psalm 90 verse 4 So Psalm 90, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. So the Bible says it right there that a thousand years is like a second to him. So why do we need to believe that God created the heavens and the earth and he created the day, and created night, and he said it was a day, and that's a 24-hour period. Well, it's a scary misconception that people are pushing, and the issue lies in this. If we tell our kids that the beginning of this book is just an approximate or theoretical, why in the world would they believe all the rest of it? If the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it probably took him several thousands of years, to do it little johnny why would little johnny believe that jesus is the only way into heaven why would he take the rest of it as 100 percent accurate if we can't even acknowledge the first part as being 100 percent accurate you can't believe some of the bible of truth and others of it of not the bible just doesn't work like that you have to take it as a whole we need to teach our kids this we need to teach our young people this because it's important it's important that they have a good foundation when they're out there in the world So let's take dragons as an example. Are they real? Or are they just something out of a fairy tale? Did you know that there are multiple accounts of dragons across the world, not just in the Bible, not just in fairy tales? From Babylon to Greece and even in the Americas, people are mentioning dragons. Multiple accounts were made by eyewitnesses several of whom were believers. So we can, we can take this information and hold on to it. Uh, John of Damascus was a scholar and a church leader, and he wrote an essay called On Dragons and Ghosts. And he's discussing the difference between dragons and the fairy tales. The fairy tales gave them mythical powers. The fairy tales gave them the ability to breathe fire and guard treasures and things like that. That's not accurate, but dragons did exist. Most accounts of dragons are included with known living creatures. So whenever you're looking at an account of dragon as a historical, as a historical piece, they're mentioned with animals that we can know, things that we can associate with, like lizards and um, all kinds of other things. So it goes lizards, and then it mentions you know a bird, and then it mentions a dragon. They don't lump them into lizards most of the time. Um, The dragon is mentioned in the King James Version 22 times. So let's take a quick look at the origin of the word. The original biblical Hebrew text included the word tenin for the word dragon. So that is a land or sea serpent or a dragon. The Greek text, so when it was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, the Greek used the word dracon, and that's where we get our English word "dragon." So, clearly, when the translation of the King James Version was originally done, it makes sense that these creatures described in the text were familiar. These were things that people were actually able to see because they already had a word in existence for it. They didn't use another word. They had a word that that described what they were seeing. So here are just a couple of the verses that mention dragons. Deuteronomy 32:33 Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of cobras. Psalm 91:13 You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the dragon. You shall trample underfoot. Isaiah 36. The burden against the beasts of the south, through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper, and the fiery flying serpent or dragon. So, I know a lot of the verses, a lot of the New King James actually changed the word from dragon to serpent, but the original. King James Version had it in there as dragon. So I'm going to read a quick little excerpt from the book Dragons, Legends, and Lore of Dinosaurs. And this was made by, if you're not familiar, um, Answers in Genesis. Um, They came out to Calvary Aurora a little while ago when I bought this book and I wanted an excuse to dive into it. So this was my excuse to dive into the lore of dragons and it was fantastic. So I'm going to read you a little excerpt from it. Careful research makes clear that not every dragon legend is true or a clear and comprehensive answer to the mystery of these creatures. Many legends have dragons controlling the weather, bringing good or bad luck, and even guarding lost treasure, which is absurd. However, taking the supernatural elements out and sticking to clearly defined accounts and historical records, there is a logical explanation for the worldwide prevalence of dragon legends. Like dragons, Noah's Flood is supported as a historical account by the many flood legends found in almost every culture in the world. In a book entitled Flood Legends, 2009, Charles Martin notes that while there are striking similarities among these legends, modern scholars look at the difference to simply dismiss them all out of hand, rather than staring starting at the points that they have in common. And seeing how remarkably similar to the biblical account these legends are. Rather than assume minor differences mean no connection, there is an alternative to accept the different versions all refer to the same event, passed on from generation to generation, altering slightly as these different cultures developed. Martin notes a possible unwillingness by some scholars to allow for the existence of an all-powerful deity. Despite the ancient trail of myth literature that clearly speaks of a worldwide flood happening at some point in early history of mankind, while there are religious aspects to the question of dragons and how they are depicted and what they represent, it is not the question of does God exist or not, which is at the heart of the dragon mystery. It is another religion that tends to place dragons as mere fable rather than creatures, and it is the religion of evolution. By arbitrarily discounting that creatures such as dinosaurs could have lived with man, then the dragon myth by extension cannot be real stories of encounters with living creatures. For the Bible to, from the Bible to other written accounts to oral history communicated down through time, it is clear that dragons were not magical or even mysterious; they were simply dinosaurs existing in a world with men and women who preserved these encounters in legends, artifacts and oral tradition. So that was a really fun side jaunt into dragons. But what I want to do now is focus on the scientific and historical evidence for the Bible. So I'm going to do this rapid fire, but I'll slow down and not speak too quickly. But I'm going to throw a bunch at you. Ready? Okay. So there is proof in archaeology. Back in 1906, archaeologists found remnants of hatasas, The ancient Hittite capital. You remember the Hittite? The children of Heth. 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls. These reputed claims that passages like Isaiah 53 were written after Jesus by the church to alter church history. 1993, the House of David inscription was found. So every one of these is a historical document that you can see today. You can fly over to Israel, you can see the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can verify that the information I'm providing you with you is completely accurate. So then we go into accuracy. So compared to other manuscripts like Aristotle, no one disputes Aristotle was a real person, right? No one believes that, their teaching, that his teachings were made up. They may not be right, but they weren't made up. There was an actual man who actually said these things. Or the story of the Homer and the Iliad. While that was a story, it didn't actually happen, but the story itself is believed to be an actual story that somebody had told and written down, right? So here are the numbers of the manuscript found for each historical account. So the scholars believe, all right, Aristotle was a real person who really walked this worth. We found 48 documents for his historical account. Homer in the Iliad, we found 643 documents for his account. Take a guess how many for the New Testament, how many manuscripts of the New Testament have been found. 24,000 have been found. So clearly the Bible is not based on anything. It is based on the word of God that was written many years ago. So let's take a look at the authenticity of its claims. It is very self-damaging. The book itself is very self-damaging. Why in the world, if we made up a book, why would Christians make up a story, specifically the account of Jesus asking God in the garden to get out of his mission? If we were going to make something up, if people way back then were going to make something up, why put that part in? Why put in the part of Jesus praying, please let this this cup pass from me? Also, it has women as the first eyewitnesses. Why invent women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection in a society where women's testimonies were not even allowed in court? It would have made more sense, if you were inventing it, to use a man. Lastly, the apostles. Why depict the eventual leaders of the church as petty and cowards who actively and passively denied their master? multiple accounts of the bible talk about how flawed and how imperfect the disciples were. If we were going to make this story up, I think the old Christians could have done a much better job at making this story up. Though so the bible has an answer to all of those questions. Why do this? Why make this stuff up? 2 Peter 1:16 For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So I like how the message put it. It made me chuckle, so I'm going to read it. The message puts it as we weren't, you know just wishing on a star when we laid the facts out before you regarding the powerful return of our Master Jesus Christ. We were there for the preview. We saw it with our own eyes. Jesus, resplendent with light from God the Father, as the voice of majesty glory spoke, This is my Son, marked by my love, focus of all my delight. We were there on the holy mountain with him. We heard the voice out of heaven with our own ears, man. There's probably a few extra likes in there somewhere too. but So let's go back to the infallacy of the word of God. I told you I would get us back here. The biggest attacks that the critics have on the Bible is the one that humans wrote it, humans err, so therefore the Bible has to have errors, right? The problem with that is that humans do not always err. Humans are not always in the wrong. So God was able to use a fallible creature to write an infallible book. Humans have the ability right now to write perfect books. Look at a math book. There are many math books out there that have no flaws in them. Okay, so then let's talk a little bit about the the memory that the disciples had. Like how could the disciples remember every word? Well, here's the thing. I can remember a joke that I was told 25 plus years ago. And this joke used to make me laugh so hard, I could not even get the punchline out. Because keep in mind, I was a little, like, you know, four-year-old. So I'm going to tell you the joke, but I was a four-year-old when I did this. What do you call when you stub your toe in the middle of the road? A tow truck. Again, I know. But I thought that that was the greatest joke in the history of the world. Word, world, and I still remember word for word that joke today. So if I can remember a joke from 25 plus years ago, then surely the apostles can remember the very words of their Lord and Savior, Jesus. So what difference does it make if there is an error? Who cares? Why are we caring about it? Well, we kind of hit on that in my Genesis rant, didn't we? So turn with me to the story of Jesus' resurrection. This is the, one of the, the verses, the things that the critics pick apart they are assuming that the divergent account is false so there's two accounts of when jesus was resurrected and we'll read them both and they diverge and so the critics are saying well if they diverge then obviously the rest of the word is wrong so matthew 28 verse 5 so matthew 28 verse 5 but The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you will seek Jesus who was crucified. Then go to John 20, verse 12. And there it says, And she saw two angels in white, Sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus was lain. So there's a mathematical princess, principle. I had Aria on the brain. There's a mathematical principle that helps us here. Wherever there is two, there is always one. Even my three-year-old knows that two comes after one. So the problem with Matthew's account, not the problem, the problems with the critics' critique of Matthew's account. As Matthew's account does not say there was only one angel, he just says that there was one angel. So he, doesn't, he just doesn't specify the totality of how many were actually there. So one angel was spoken, so he said the angel. In the Bible, there is nothing unscientific or pre-scientific. Does the meteorologist ever say, Oh, look at the beautiful earth's rotation. Well, Nathan might, but for the rest of us, we say, no, no, look at the beautiful sunset. They use it in common terminology. The Bible was written for the common man. So just like my examples in the intro, you can't take the Bible out of context. Matthew thirteen thirty-one is the story of the mustard seed. I'm going to read that for you real quick, too. Because what's a church if you don't read the Bible, right? Especially as much as I'm talking it up. So, Matthew thirteen thirty-one, And another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds... But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come nest in its branches. So the the scientists love to pick on this story because science proved that an orchid seed is actually smaller than a mustard seed. However, the mustard seed mentioned was the literal smallest which the man token sowed. It was the smallest of what he had. It didn't say it's the smallest in the world. It was the smallest of what he was carrying. And it is pretty small. So the message is still what's coming across rather than the small little technicalities. All right, great, BK. You've talked for a long time. You convinced me. But now what? What am I to do with this information? It's simple, really. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Don't let the world sway your belief in the facts. Rely on his word, rely on his power, and how it was made manifest in your life. The work that he has done in your life and the words that he has given you in this book are all that you need to make a disciple. Sawing someone in half is, not, is going to draw a crowd, but your life and actions are going to draw someone to Christ. Trust in this word to guide your life. You now know that this book is perfect. Use it study it, rely on it. Having a bad day, maybe a bad week, heck, even a bad month. Is it maybe because you're not trusting in the everlasting promises that the book has to offer? I think in all of our hearts, Christians know this book to be everything they need. But then that little thing of self and flesh comes along and we think, Well, how do we know God didn't just create monkeys? and over millions of years, Adam and Eve evolved from that. Because the Bible did not say that. We need to trust in the words of this book as Jesus did in our daily lives. So, I leave you with this. Are you going to criticize the Bible, or are you going to let the Bible criticize you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for... The message you've given us, thank you for the time that we have to gather in our country and pray that it can just be just a time to, to let it sink in and to glorify you. I pray that we can draw words and draw strength from your, from your word, from your perfect word. And We thank you for sending your son to, to die for us. We thank you for the freedoms of this country. and We pray that our time today can be blessed and the worship can be blessed. Amen.